Well, it's a great thrill for me to have Alan and Betsy Poole here this morning. They've been friends of Beth and, and me for, for uh, 32 years. And um, Alan, uh, Alan and I got to be friends when I was 16, and I had uh, a lot of uh, life's persistent questions that I'd throw at him like darts. He was very patient with me. He never answered a single one of them, though. Um, but I remember when I, was, uh, I went to seminary, uh, Alan and I drove up to Gordon-Conwell. I fell in love with the place, and uh, that's where Alan went, and uh, he introduced me to that place. And I remember uh, when I was up there, I, I, I had somebody that, uh, that was in college, that was in the college class I was teaching. She said, well, what does a pastor do all day? And I thought to myself, uh, I better come up with something smart here, because I had no idea. And uh, so I listed all these things. I thought, wow, all these, you know, just a whole litany of, of things that pastors do all day. And, and uh, first thing I did when I got back to my dorm room was call him, and I said, hey, what do you do all day? <laughs> and he said, uh, things come up. <laughs> That's what he said. That was his answer. Things come up. And I thought, well, thanks, Yoda. What does that mean? <clears throat> And uh, I remember my first uh, couple of weeks uh, in my first uh, role in the, in the pastorate in Texas, and I was spinning my chair trying to figure out how was I going to get all this done from Monday to Sunday. And I remembered that conversation, things come up, and it hit like a delayed punchline. <laughs> I called him up, and I just said, things come up. And he said, yeah, I was wondering when that was going to ring home to you. <laughs> well, uh, Alan is one of the wisest people I know, and so um, now uh, I can, he can do nothing but, uh, but disappoint you with his sermon. So. <laughs> but uh, but it's, a, it's a great honor and privilege uh, for us to, to welcome uh, them this morning, Alan and Betsy, and Alan to the pulpit. Would you, I, we don't normally do this, but would you welcome them for us as Alan comes up? Uh, let's turn to the least understood book in the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation. I don't know how big a chunk of scripture Tim uses when he usually preaches, but uh, I bet this is going to be more. Uh, we're going to start with the fourth chapter, and I, I would like to invite you to turn on your imaginations. Our imaginations, in spite of Hollywood's best efforts, they get dulled and flattened. We cannot read the book of Revelation without turning on our imagination. So let me invite you to turn on your imagination because we're taken into this extraordinary moment here in the fourth chapter. Don't worry about what you don't understand. Don't get hung up on creatures with eyes everywhere, stuff like that. Don't, don't get stuck there. Listen to God's word. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'm going to show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around that throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the thrones came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. 
which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, and with, uh, around and within, and day and night, they never cease to pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give the glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And I'm going to go ahead and read two other brief sections from chapter 5. Other responses that come from these elders. So in verse 9, we see that they also sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and language and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then they also sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, everything that is, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everybody is a worshiper. Everybody. Every single human being is a worshiper, not just Christians. Everybody worships something. Human beings know instinctively that we were meant for something greater than ourselves. And so we are by nature searching creatures. We are meaning makers. We try on different things to give shape and structure and purpose and direction to our lives, often without knowing that we're doing so. We're looking. And some of us are pretty simple in our searches. In Durham, where Betsy and I are from, we gather at a place called Cameron Indoor Stadium, especially this time of year during basketball season, and we worship there. <laughs> now, football season at Duke is more an experience of Lent. Do you know what Lent is? <clears throat> it's a season of repentance and sorrow. It's a season of hope, to be sure. But hope seems a long way off. But basketball season is when you enter into celebrative worship with joy and expectation. And worship can take lots of other forms. Some folks give themselves to the adulation of other people, and that becomes a kind of worship. We might have pictures of athletes. Are fatheads still a thing, guys? Uh, is that still a thing where... Uh, these uh, famous people are on the walls, uh, or we download, more likely, photos of celebrities. Uh, remember that guy or girl in middle school who you thought was so cool 
Well, my wife says we're all seventh graders at heart, comparing ourselves to others, wishing that we could be that person, glad that we're not that person, trying to locate ourselves somehow in this hierarchy of relationship, right? And then still others worship ideas of success or reputation. Or on a grander scale, we have large ideas of social transformation. We seem to be living through this interminable political season just now. And when I look at political rallies, it sure looks to me, for all the world, like people are worshiping. Does it ever strike you that way? They're hoping that their person, their party, their candidate will lead an enlightened charge into the future. And others seem to worship more mysterious things, things that are harder to pin down. Some people, for example, seem to be in a worship relationship with their own fears, which in turn require a sacrificial obedience and loyalty. These are just examples. There are all kinds of others. You probably have a bunch that have popped into your head just as you've begun to think a little bit about this. But the point of this is every one of us is a worshiper. It's the way we're constituted as human beings. And it really matters because you are shaped by what you give yourself to. That's who you are. Christians have at least begun to get their clarity around this question. We have come to know about the importance of allegiance and loyalty and worship. We have come to know about the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, who has given us uh, His life so that we might, as we have sung about this morning, be redeemed and reconciled to Him. We have recognized that He is the rightful object of our worship. The first declaration of the Christian has always been, Jesus Christ is Lord. And to ascribe lordship to somebody is to say that person or that thing is worthy of our loyalty, our allegiance, our worship. That's what we say as Christians, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the rightful recipient of our allegiance and our worship. So as we gather on Sunday mornings each week, we do so, and we examine as a part of our worship our allegiances. Tim talked about disordered love in his prayer. That's part of what we're doing here this morning. If we walk out the doors without having done this, then we have stopped short of the reason why God has called us together this morning. Because part of what goes on here is a call to reorder and reprioritize our lives each week, recognizing His Lordship in a fresh way. Does that always happen? Our gatherings for worship can morph into something other, something less than that dramatic examination of allegiances and priorities. And historically, I think we can see a couple of temptations that afflict us as worshipers, that can lead us astray. The first can be an overemphasis on the intellectual. Here, the focus is primarily educational. The sermon is right at the center of the service, as it is pretty much this morning. It gets the most time of the worship and the pulpit is often located right at the center of the room. It's an intentional architectural reinforcement of the theological focus that's happening in that understanding of worship. This has been a traditional focus for those of us who are used to being in the Presbyterian world. And it's good and important. The problem is that that movement can be all one way, from the pulpit to the congregation. It can be non-participatory, and the focus of our worship can be misunderstood as something like, 
Well, if I say uh, information delivery, do you understand what I mean? And so some of us grew up uh, in households where we would get in the car after church and we would be on our way home. And mom, it was always mom, would turn to my sister and me and say, well, what did you get out of the sermon? Dead silent. On the other hand, in the history of the church, you can find an overemphasis on the emotional aspect of worship. And here the focus is not so much educational as it is inspirational. And worship is designed through the music that is sung and the texts that are chosen. They're designed to produce a certain kind of feeling that we identify as religious. The problem here is that there can be a lack of depth and content, and it tends to focus on experience. In these kinds of settings, when the experience flattens out, as it inevitably must, as things get familiar, then folks are tempted to chase that feeling instead of the Lord. And they might even change churches in pursuit of that feeling. I think these are two possible difficulties that emerge if we misunderstand the heart of worship. But John, in the book of Revelation, gives us a hand. There's a lot of strange stuff in Revelation, but there is luminous vision as well. And we can be instructed here, I think. We can find a guide to our own worship. What is the purpose of our worship? Is it to learn more? Is it to feel something? What does John help us to see? Well, John's vision leads us right into the very presence of God, doesn't it? And when we enter that vision, what's the first thing that we see? A throne. A throne is right there in the middle of it all. Remember that moment in The Wizard of Oz? Do people still watch The Wizard of Oz? When Dorothy and that humble company of saints walk through those imposing double doors and down that aisle, do you remember that scene? What captures your imagination? It's a throne, isn't it? When there is a throne in the room, where does your attention go? That's where John takes us, to this throne. And this the, the, the exception is, though, that this, this throne in John is no dream projection of a little girl who just needs to go back to Kansas. Here is the center on this throne is the center of creative reality itself, the throne of God around which are gathered representatives of all of creation and what a creation it is. Creatures that you and I have never seen are included in this. They are all bowing and they are all declaring worth to God. Worthy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what does that mean except that here is the one true God who holds all of time and history, including your life and mine, in His hands. Here is the one who is rightly worshipped. He sits rightly enthroned, and before him all creation bows in awe and worship. The first thing here that we see in this vision of John is that God is to be worshipped for who he is. There's nobody like him. You will search this world over, and you will not find another who comes close. But there's a second theme here. He is also exalted and worshipped, and I wonder if you caught this as we made our way through that lengthy reading. He's also worshipped for what he has done, and our attention is drawn to three things in particular. God is extolled as the creator in 4.11, the author of life. You created all things, and by your will, we live. 
And as his breath hovered over the formless void and called it into existence, so that same spirit calls you and me into existence. As the creator, God sets aside one day each week to be a sign of his lordship over all time and activity. That's the reason for that fourth commandment in the book of Exodus, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, to remember that in worshiping this God, he is also the God of your time and mine. How many of us say, oh, I'm really busy? That's a failure of discipleship. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be busy, but it's a failure to mark time as God would have us mark it. It's to remind us that God has a rightful claim over every moment of our lives. But then the second thing that we saw in those little renderings from the elders around the throne is that God is also our Redeemer. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. God is to be worshipped because He has entered human history into your history, into, into my history, to offer us redemption through Jesus Christ. Creator, Redeemer, you know what the third one is. You have purchased men for God from every tribe and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. What does that mean? It means that God is to be worshipped because He has entered into a covenant relationship with us. He has made a promise from which He will never back away. He sustains us by His Holy Spirit. He holds on to us even when we cannot hold on to Him. We get to join Him in His mission to the world. That's what those conversations, those, those conversations are about that Tim was talking about earlier. We get to join Him in His mission to the world to make all things new. This is the foundation of our worship, I think. In worship, we celebrate with reverence and awe who God is and what He has done. The focus isn't on us, it's on Him. If we can grasp this, then I think we have a hope of understanding why we come here on Sunday mornings. And I imagine that there are those of us who can remember asking their parents, even as their parents asked their parents when Sunday came around, really? Do we have to do that again? Didn't we already do that once? It seems like we just did it. Why do we have to go back to church? But worship is essentially a retelling of who God is and what He has done. And it expresses the relationship that exists between God and His people. It is a retelling each and every week using fixed forms of expression like sermons and sacraments and anthems and prayers and songs. All of these things are telling a story, the story of a God who has come searching out of love for His prodigal children in order to bring them home again. And He's done this by sending His own Son into this far country in pursuit of you. That's drama. That is drama of the highest order. Now here's why I start getting nervous, because I feel like I'm stepping onto uncertain territory when I tell you that my dad is an Auburn alum. <laughs> and he is an Auburn fan of the first order. And I was raised in a home where Auburn was a straight-up competitor to God. <laughs> My dad is now 90 years old, but until last year, he had season tickets to every home game, and every Saturday they were playing at home, he was in his car driving from Birmingham to Auburn to join the throngs of worshipers who gathered there on the plains. Every season, the memories of past glories were recounted in our house. 
telling us again and again, often with the words, I've told you once, I'm going to tell you again. Recounting the thrilling moments in Auburn's history, Georgia has been the victim of some of those thrilling moments. But especially the focus was against the team who must not be named <laughs> from Tuscaloosa. And I tell you this story because, first of all, even though I realize I'm on enemy turf, that old adage applies, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I think we have a common enemy. <laughs> and I'm also, I'm also relying on your southern hospitality, which is legendary. And you also beat Auburn a few weeks ago. So for you Georgia fans in the room, I'm hoping you're in a good mood this morning and can receive this. But my father will still regale you, whether you want to hear it or not, with the story of the Iron Bowl of December 2nd, 1972. Auburn was down 13 against Alabama with the clock winding down. Alabama had held Auburn to a meager 80 yards of offense that entire game. By some miracle, the Tigers had forced a punt. Bill Newton, I'll never forget his name. Jesus Christ and Bill Newton go together. <laughs> Bill Newton, who was a lineman, broke through the line, blocked the punt, and a defensive back, David Langner, the other member of the Trinity, picked up the ball and carried it into the end zone. Whoa. At least we salvaged a little self-respect, we were thinking. But then, in a surprising show of godly strength and courage, Auburn once more rose up and forced a second punt. And the same David, uh, same David Newton, now you know his name too, broke through that line, blocked the punt, and the same defensive back scooped up the ball and scored again. Final score, Auburn 17, the other guys 16. Now, that's biblical history in my family. <clears throat> and my father has a recording of this game on an old medium called VHS. <laughs> and he still plays it over and over again. He knows the phrases the announcer uses. He'll lean over to you and say, now watch this. Now watch this. He knows everything that's about to happen, and yet he insists on watching it again and again. How, he knows how it's all going to turn out, and still he watches it. Why? Well, that's exactly the point. Values are affirmed and reinforced. Good triumphs over evil. Once again, the glorious saints of Auburn light push back the Mordor darkness of Tuscaloosa. <laughs> that's what's going on in Scripture, too. My dad doesn't think of it that way. He thinks that Scripture is a reflection of Auburn. We need to flip it around. The story in Revelation does the same thing over and over again. The drama of God's mighty redemption is sung and dramatized. And that's what we are doing here, whether we realize it or not. Every week, we come affirming and reaffirming God's triumph over evil. And some of you are sitting here this morning, and you need to hear it again, don't you? You need to hear that what God has done in Jesus Christ means that he has not abandoned you to the circumstances in which you find yourself this morning, today, in 2018. You need to hear again that the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the forces that are arrayed against you in your own life. That the power of the Holy Spirit is stronger than even the most deeply ingrained habits of our own lives that seem like they cannot be overcome. What an awesome picture it is and how easily we get tired of it. And that's where we find the problem. 
And I think it threatens to destroy our worship. I think it comes down to this. We have the performer confused with the audience. We've reversed our roles. In Revelation, who is the audience? God. And who are the performers? It's this strange array of living creatures. And as we bring this picture to our worship here in Thomasville or in Durham, it should look like this. God is the audience while you, the congregation, are the performers. And the pastor and the musicians are like the prompters in the drama, helping you, the performers, get your lines right. But we've reversed the roles. Today, the congregation too often sees itself as the audience because we live in a performance-oriented world where you pay money and you go see somebody do something to you. The congregation sees itself as the audience and the prompters and God are the performers. And we get to blog about how they did. By reversing the roles in worship, worship becomes something that's done to us, an experience that is induced by God or by the choir or by the pastor through the music that's sung or, and how it makes you feel or the sermon, whether it tickles your intellect with some new idea. We have to get our grammar straight. If worship is to be what it should be, because we have to understand that worship is a verb and not a noun. Worship is something that we enter into, something that's already going on around the throne of heaven. We get to participate. We get to enter into it. It isn't something that's done to us. We give every week. We give ourselves anew in worship, and we reenact every week with gratitude and thanksgiving the richness of this drama of redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Once you were dead, I was dead in my sin and trespasses, but I've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Given new life where once there was death, there is now life and hope. Now we are alive in Christ. We need the reminder, don't we? We need the retelling because there are a lot of stories out there that are competing for our attention. Every time we do this, we confront the idols of our culture that insist that we do not need God. I'm here to tell you that I need Jesus Christ. And when I come to worship, even as a pastor, I am so thrilled to be in a congregation where my congregation allows me to be a worshiper too and not a performer because I need to have the story told again in my life. Every Sunday I come to worship, I have with me all the stuff that all of us have with us. I have a desperate need to reorient my priorities, to see things aright again, to be lifted out of my own self-centeredness, to have a chance to glimpse the world in the way that God sees the world. In our worship, we find life and refreshment and even joy. And as we worship, we see again not only that God deserves our worship, we also see that we need a Savior and that we are lost without Him buried under the weight of our own foolishness and self-tyranny. And once we see afresh our need for Christ and that God has met that need, then I think our worship changes. From a Sunday morning ritual that requires only that we get out before the Baptists <laughs> to a life-changing encounter. Are you former Baptists? Uh, <laughs> yes, you are. Okay. To a life-changing encounter with the God who is alive. And what happens to time when you are in the presence of the living God?
and all of us, like those elders in the book of Revelation, fall in adoration, our priorities change so that we end up asking one big question. How can we demonstrate our gratitude and our love for you more and more? Jesus Christ is the center of our worship because he is the center of our lives. And we aren't here to get, but to give. And in giving, we receive more than we can imagine. As you go home on, on a Sunday morning, the question you should ask yourself is not the question that my mother asked me every Sunday in the car. What did you get out of the sermon? That's an understandable question. And of course, I hope you get something out of the sermon. I hope you get something out of the worship time together. I know Tim hopes and prays that this congregation gets something out of our time together, but the primary question we should be asking ourselves in the aftermath of our time together is not what did I get out of it, but how did I do? Did I offer myself? Did I give a fair and faithful response to the character and acts of Almighty God, who I say sits enthroned at the center of my life. Have I said this morning with my whole heart and mind and soul, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, worthy of receiving all praise and honor and glory. Lord, that is our prayer as we gather today. Creatures with fickle wills, with desires that run amok, where we are only one commercial away from thinking that life would only be fulfilled if we had X. You have given yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would transform our desires, that you would reorder our priorities so that everything we do in life, everything we do in life, might flow from that central act of loving kindness that you have shown us in Jesus Christ that we might respond to you with full hearts of gratitude. How can we love you more? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.